0: one more presentation in our general session today. Our next two speakers are coming to talk to us about communication, collaboration, and really working together. Lessons we've learned, lessons going forward. Our first speaker, Lauren Opet, has nearly 15 years of experience in Homeland Security emergency management and communications related fields. She currently serves as the Director of Communications Agency Spokesperson for VDEM. For her role in the VEST, Ms. Ms. Opet, Lauren, (laughs) leads the State Joint Information Center, which serves as the central point of contact for incident-related public information activities. She oversees the collaboration of public information officials from participating federal, state, and local agencies. She has served as the state JIC manager for several disasters, including hurricanes, winter storms, and so on and so forth. Just not chickens yet. She has a master's degree from from American Military University and a bachelor's from Virginia Tech. Our second speaker is Sable K. Dyer. She is the director of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for VDEM. She is a licensed attorney and social equity expert specializing in research, communications and training, and healthcare policy and legal analysis. Prior to graduating from North Carolina Central University Law School, she received her Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science and Biology from Howard. For nearly 20 years, Sable Kay has been engaged in local, state, and federal advocacy campaigns, base building, training, and educational initiatives, as well as technical and capacity building assistance in the context of social determinants of equity. In her limited downtime, Sable Kay enjoys cooking, knitting and crocheting, I love that, playing with her dog, and watching historical dramas, I love that too. Uh, so, With that, if you would please welcome Lauren Opet and Sable K. Dyer to the stage.
1: I'm going to go through this presentation today, it's a really high level overview of really the past two years kind of in a bucket. Um, We're going to unpackage some things um, for those of you uh, that I haven't met, which I know I've met a lot of you and I'm really excited like everybody else to see you all in person and not on a screen. Um, I'm Lauren Appetum, the Director of Communications for VDEM. I have been working with VDEM in some capacity, contractor. I was our state exercise officer um, for eight, nine years now. Um, And so in those nine years, I've also supported the Joint Information Center in my VEST role, Um, and so previous to me taking this position was Jeff Caldwell, uh, and he actually uh, left his position for the private sector. I think a month before COVID started, um, and so I have had the privilege of of leading our state joint information center um, for a few years. In addition to kind of rebuilding our communications program at Vdom, so and then Sable Kay, who recently joined us um, from the Virginia Department of Health, she's going to have um, some slides later on. Uh, really tying in the diversity equity and inclusion piece because we do work uh, very close together with that um, that new office So I want to start off with um, a quote that a friend sent me during COVID and I thought it was um, As simple as it was I really carry it with me into everything I do now And that's that the only thing harder than preparing for emergency is explaining why you didn't and so as we go through this week I want you all to keep that take pictures Uh, I do want you all to keep this in mind because as you go through things and you think that something is going to be hard or something's going to be expensive or something's going to take too many resources that you have, I want you to keep this in mind and share it with leadership because this is absolutely 100% true and I think we've learned throughout the past two years what it's like having to explain why you didn't do something. So I, I put together a list for Sean earlier, a high-level list of everything that we've done. And and this is just a, a snapshot, but I think what's really kind of crazy about this list is, is you talk about like disaster bingo, did anybody see that that was a thing? Like did you have that on your bingo card? Um, Take a look at this list, because it's not our normal events. I never saw myself having to deal with a cyber pipeline incident and communicating that and telling people not to put gasoline in plastic bags. Um, I never saw myself following truck convoys um, you know, through, through DC and trying to track where they're going and what are they doing. Um, repatriation, that was another one that it was like, Um, somebody had said, yeah, no, we own the plan for that. And I'm like, where is the plan? Um, What shelf is that on? I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, And then we certainly didn't have a robust communications plan for that. So, and the crazy part about all of those last, maybe 13 things is that we did all of those while we were still tackling number one. And so when you think to yourself, like over the past two years, this is a lot of work that we have all done and under the largest pandemic and going, um, in most cases, completely virtual. So looking back, no two incidents are the same. And I know we said that a lot, but taking a plan that you had for a hurricane, and now that plan is suddenly dealing with hurricanes during a COVID-19 pandemic, um, and taking everything that you had and reworking every plan um, just to fit the current disaster environment. And so, um, I used to be the state exercise officer, and the the big phrase there is don't fight the scenario, and I joke that like, I don't actually think anybody's ever gonna fight your scenario against Stephanie, because like, we could throw like 50 events, and you're like, that could probably happen. Um, and so, and everything comes with a communications challenge. So, I stepped into the communications role, um, and just a little bit about our, our new team. Um I took over in my background is in emergency management and I've worked in the state jick for a number of years, so and I'm I'm comfortable to I'll talk to a wall if you let me. So I had a really hard time during COVID because I have to see people. Um, but what I did was um think through like when I applied for the job, is that I really want to communicate emergency management and not just um, have a communications background and then try to work in a little bit about emergency preparedness. So <clears throat> when I took the job, um, Jason Elmore, who many of you may know from Chesterfield County, he's the PIO for a number of years, he has a really good public safety, fire, police, EMS background, but he's also um, like a pastor in his spare time and he's, just, he's, he's a great speaker. Um, And then we have Danielle Gishard who runs our social media. She came from a local news network and so she understands how people um, retain information and how they utilize social media to get information. Um, And then our our latest hire Katie uh, Carter who is here and we'll be talking about partners and preparedness we brought her on. Um, She was a meteorologist from a local news network and she's going to be doing outreach um, And the great thing about having them, if you all are ever looking to build a communications team, don't hesitate to hire from like a local news station because they keep it real and they will tell me, Lauren, they are not going to pick up that story or that press release. And just having that knowledge about how media works um, in general has been really critical to, I think, some of the successes that we're starting to have with putting out our public information. Knowledge gaps is a pretty big one. Um, And I'm not just talking about like you don't know what you're doing. I'm talking about like none of us were likely pandemic experts before the pandemic hit. And so naturally some of those communications challenges are just gonna come because we don't know everything about everything. Um, And so that is one of the key pieces when I think about communications is that I don't, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a microbiologist, I'm not an avian influenza expert, but the goal for communications and successful communications is to find those people to give you the information that then you can figure out how to communicate. Um, Resource gaps is a really big one, um, and I'm not just talking about people, communications experts, um, how many of you have the ability to translate anything you want to right now? You have the, the complete funding to translate. None of us, none of us in a blue sky. If, if we're not under a disaster declaration, we don't have the ability to do translation. And just knowing that you're gonna have those resource gaps and identifying them ahead of time um, is really critical. Competing priorities. So this was a really big one that we identified during COVID because you have folks over here that are very smart medical scientists that have priorities that I will never understand. Um, And then we have priorities in emergency management and protecting the public and communicating with the public. And sometimes they don't jive. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that you need to identify that ahead of time. So understanding that you're going to have folks that are going to have priorities that don't always match up with you. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about how to collaborate in a joint information system to sort of bring that together silos, that goes along with competing priorities a little bit too. Um, This was another big one I think during the past few years is just not knowing what what you don't know, and not everybody knows to come to emergency management. I venture to guess that if we were to poll a random, you know, selection of 100 people, they may not even be able to describe what emergency management does. So sometimes it's not that they don't want to involve us, they just don't know um, what it is that we do, and that education piece is really big. And I'll talk a little bit later about how um, we at VDEM are gonna try to really um, enhance not just what we do at VDEM, but emergency management as a profession as a whole. Um, And then new personnel, so we we lost some colleagues over the past few years, we brought some new ones on. Uh, There's always a gap, um, you know, and some training opportunities that have to come with that and when you're in the midst of a pandemic the thought of training new people um, is really difficult and you just got to kind of throw them in there and i know that everybody that works on the communication staff really uh, feels that deep within their soul i'm sure Um, and so just understanding uh, that new personnel uh, can be a challenge politics Um, i I took a class recently and um, i always thought that you know we talk about how um, different uh, ages receive information and how different genders receive information. And the biggest gap in how people will receive information, you as a person, is typically at like an 80% based on your political view. So how you interpret something, whether you're gonna like it or whether you're gonna listen to it or whether you're not, is not based on that you're 60 or you're 20 or you're 40 or you're male and you're female it's based on your political beliefs. And so that's a huge one that we have to think about when we're communicating with people. Um, And then just the unknown. So communications and emergency management is actually, it's it's really critical. Um, So how many of you have a designated PIO? Not yourself. So very, maybe, okay, maybe 10%. Um, How many of you are the PIO because nobody else is it? (laughs) Right. And so there's a lot of you, and so um, one of the one of the things when it comes to public information is that a lot of you are emergency managers. Maybe you're a police chief, you're a fire chief, um, you're wearing multiple hats. How easy is it going to be for you in the middle of an incident to be pushing out tweets, to be sending out public information? It's pretty challenging, and so if you don't have somebody designated to do this role, um, it, becomes, uh, it, be- it becomes challenging because you do have to be timely with your public information. And so one of the things that um, I-, I started to notice during COVID as we started to interact with some of the, the PIOs, um, people were tapping like administrative assistants or they were tapping planners or other people that didn't have a communications background, but sometimes you just need to get information out there and you're just too busy. Um, so something to keep in mind. Uh, One of the key things for emergency management is it lets you control the narrative. Um, Because emergency management is is a little bit um, vague in what we do, at least for the general public, um, making sure that that people know that we're in control of the information and that we can gather information. So um, ensuring that you become, and we'll talk about this, um, the trusted messenger, and that's that last bullet. Government really suffered a huge loss, and it's no surprise to everybody during COVID and becoming a trusted messenger. People don't trust the government. They don't trust what I say. If I post something about COVID, I'm going to get 50 trolls that just start talking about name the president that's in office. Um, And so um, you know, and people don't know what to believe and How many of us were trying to figure out what the CDC was saying versus BDH versus local health? I mean, it was, it was impossible. And so you can imagine if it was a little bit hard for us to keep up with what it's like for the public that's trying to get information. Um, so really becoming those trusted people. Allowing governments to use SMEs to share information. And this one was really big for us. Um, when COVID hit, it was relying a lot on VDH, and and VDM actually took the lead on the Joint Information Center. Um, and I know we're going to talk about Joint Information Centers, but we always joke that the that people I feel like think like the JIC is like the land of Oz. Like we just have all these subject matter experts, and like, oh, you want me to put out a press release? Yep, I'll go ahead and write that right now. What's the topic? Yep, okay. Um, And it's just not that way, people don't understand that we still have to get the information as communicators. I can write you a press release, I can write you talking points on whatever you want, but you have to give me the information. So what we've learned, knowledge sharing. So there's a big difference between how you communicate day-to-day versus how we communicate in a crisis. And so day-to-day communications um, can can be, you know, lighthearted, can be more fun, it, it's not meant to, um, you know, it's meant for people to take action, but it's not like immediate, you know, life safety information. When we move into crisis communication, this is where we really have to think about how people are going to interpret what we say. Um, if we're evacuating and I tell people, you need to leave and find somewhere to go. There's a significant portion of the population that will have friends or family that can go get a hotel room, but what are we doing about the populations that don't have the money? They don't have anywhere to go. And so, um, when you start thinking about crisis communications, you have to turn the wheels a little bit and adjust your mentality to start thinking about, okay, like, who needs to get this information, how can we help them, what resources can we provide? And what can we provide up front so they're not having to find the information? So if we're evacuating, you need to be able to tell people where there's shelters um, and where there's helpful resources up front, because if you're doing that on the flip side, um, number one, you're going to be getting a lot of phone calls into your joint information center or your 911 or your um, emergency management office. Um, but it also just, um, it, it delays them getting the information and being able to take action. Rumor control is another big one. Um, and knowing when to correct rumors. And, and we don't really have, you know, a set rule of thumb like, oh, if three or more people write us in our, in our private message, we're going to address the rumor. We kind of have to see where it's going. Um, there was so much going on during COVID. It was just like you. sometimes you just had to let the crazies post stuff and just let it work <laughs> on its own um, because you would just literally fight a never-ending battle. Um, and so understanding where you need to purposefully, and we call it being reactive versus proactive with your messaging. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that because that, that has hit um, with some of the, uh, the snowstorms and the trucker convoys and all of that. Um, life sharing and humanizing your brand. Um, It's very probably difficult for you to see your locality as a brand, but you are. The way that people perceive you as a locality is almost in the same light that they would perceive a company that they purchase supplies from. Um, And so you have to decide what your brand is going to be to the public. Um, And one of the things that um, Emergency management can tend to be sort of that doom and gloom messaging. Turn around, don't drown, have a kit, um, have some supplies, know your zone. Um, and we really wanna get away from that messaging and focus into more positive stories and uh, a more positive light of emergency management, doing some creative videos, doing public outreach, going out into the communities and meeting people face to face. If you're just sitting on your social media posting, hey, it's going to rain, turn around, don't drown, you know. So humanizing your brand. Um, another thing that we've tried to do is highlight stories of our personnel. Um, and when we talk about um, you know, emergency management as a whole, is really taking a look at what it is that we all do. Uh, we, I did a presentation um, for some kids at a Red Cross Youth Summit and um, they were blown away. They just thought we were like FEMA. We went and like set up trailers after disasters. Um, and so to talk through like search and rescue and HAZMAT and running an emergency operations center, like that's cool stuff that the public doesn't know that we do. And if the public doesn't know that you're doing it and you're not getting the attention of them, you're not getting it of elected officials or senior leadership that have the money, to support your programs and so the more that they know that you're involved in or that you're doing um, and humanizing your people if they'll let you and I know that's a privacy issue to some people um, that's a really cool big thing um, and it goes a long way and like they were saying earlier really explaining what it is that we do um, social networking and citizen engagement we're, we're trying to do some things um, Different things. So we've got some things geared towards kids, because um, we all know like we're not filling out a fire safety kit until your kid comes home in second grade and was like, we need to have a fire plan like right now. And suddenly like you've got like all your windows labeled of like where you're going to go as a family. Um, and so we're really trying to do that. We're starting to try uh, to start young. Um, We built actually a preparedness guide for kids um, with uh, Calvin, I believe his name, Calvin the Cardinal. Um, And he takes kids through what it is to be an emergency manager. It's a coloring book. It's got a kit. Um, So we've really tried to push that. Unfortunately, we had to push it digitally um, because it was developed during COVID. But um, we've got some really cool stuff. We're going to do a family prep night um, on Zoom with FEMA uh, and have people tell disaster stories. Um, twofold. Number one, we want to get preparedness message, but number two, we want to start building the next generation of emergency managers. And how you do that is you start making emergency management look really cool at a young age. Um, and so that's part of our goal with that as well. Um, building trust through transparency, I'll talk about that when we talk about partners and preparedness. Um, more is not always better. So um, I actually talked to Katie and Danielle um, about press releases, because we, we, every every time we did something, it was like, oh, we're gonna put out a press release. Um, and I'm like, is that really, like, effective? And, and I'll show you a slide to kind of show you why it's not. Um, but I just thought, like, the more information I'm pumping out, like, the better, right? But then what happens is people really quickly hit unsubscribe, because they're like, yeah, I don't care that you're releasing a grant that only, like, a locality can apply for. So you start losing, like, your actual residents and people that may want actionable information. Um, And so just keeping that in the back of your mind, and I'll talk through kind of like our best practices where we see it more appropriate for a press release versus a social media post. And considering how people receive their information and who they trust. So really quick show of hands, how many of you use press releases as your primary method of getting public information out? That's good. How many of you use social media? So quite a bit. So roughly half of Americans get theirs through a digital platform and a third prefer TV. So if you're only using press releases, you're hitting, if this was the same sampling, 5% of people just through a press release. And that's huge. And people talk about, well I can't do social media, not everybody has access to internet. And that's true, and so you need to account for all of those, but understanding that taking away social media just because some people can't get it is really detrimental um, to being able to get your information out. And then if you look at those under 50, I mean obviously we all know uh, and would expect that, but I also find it interesting because people are like, oh yeah, the people 65 and up, they don't use digital. They do, and it's actually almost half. Um, And it's really interesting to me that they, that that 50 and up are still watching TV. And so how many of us are proactively going to our media stations when we have things to convey and asking them to cover information? Because if that's your target audience, 50 and up, now you've got to take a look and you've got to shift a little bit, like if we do this on TV and social media, I'm gonna hit a lot more people. And then this one I actually found. Um, I'm not a YouTuber, so don't look for me on YouTube. I don't. I don't make um, you know TikToks or anything like that. But the U.S. teens do, and so it's really interesting to look and see because we had a really old YouTube channel. It had like two really rogue videos from like eight years ago. We like we didn't even know who the people were. <laughs> Poor Danielle had to fight the YouTube gods to like get control back of our YouTube page, and we we lost, so we had to start another one. Um, But she kept telling me, we need to be on YouTube, we need to, I'm like, who's on YouTube? Like, I'm picturing my child like watching other kids open toys on YouTube, and I'm like, what are we gonna do? Um, But that's what they use, and I'm shocked by it. But, um, so yeah, if you're not on YouTube, um, Facebook, uh, I was told by um, teens is not cool anymore, it's for old people. And so I am on Facebook, and so um, that's fine. And so we use a lot of Facebook, but we also use a lot of Twitter, which I thought was really popular until I learned that it wasn't as popular as I thought. Now the problem with Snapchats and TikToks is we all have a little... records retention um, thing that we have to do uh, to keep us legal and so um, you have to be really careful with some of those because you have to be able to um, to satisfy your records retention, excuse me, requirement. Um, So how do you communicate the various risks with the hazards and then what does success mean to you? Is success to you meeting you know, 75 percent of your population? You have to decide you know, we're going to try these, and if we hit, you know, 50% and we've got to go out in the general public to hit the rest, that's fine. Um, Involving various agencies, groups, and leaders. So, in emergency management, we are blessed and cursed that we have to work with a lot of different people. And I say that because it's great to pull in resources and it's great to pull in information. Um, but it's not so great when the people don't participate um, and then it falls back on you. And, and I, know, I know we've all had that experience. And so one of the things um, that was a challenge for us was, was, and I'll use COVID as an example, you had people that were just, that were just overtaxed from everywhere from emergency managers to scientists, you name it, they were busy. And so the JIC is like, hey, we've got to get this stuff out, I need you to clarify, like, what we want to say to the general public about this. And you don't hear anything back. And you're like, no, we need this information. And they're like, don't you, can you get the information? No, I'm not a scientist, like, you've you've got to get the SMEs to give us information. Um, And so... Educating people about what a joint information system is, and it is a group of communicators, but those communicators are not specialists, they're not SMEs in information. So really making sure that you have that subject matter expertise is really critical. Understanding hyper-local needs. So it's one thing to say, we're going to communicate with this locality. But I venture to guess in all of your localities that the eastern half of your county is different from the western half of the county, which may be different from the north and the south. And so you really have to understand if you're gonna do local messaging, do you have pockets of communities that are not gonna receive that information in the same way that the remainder of your locality does? And I know that we all have those. And um, BDUM has done some really great work and I know Sable K has been involved and getting data on our most vulnerable communities that we are, you know, happy to share. Um, and, and most of you, if you're a seasoned emergency manager and been in your locality, you know where those pockets are. Um, but just understanding that communications doesn't always apply to your entire jurisdiction. Sometimes you've got to go to that super hyper, hyper local level and sometimes you got to meet them where they are. Um, Anticipating resources and building new partnerships. Um, If you take nothing away, I've been coming to this conference for almost 10 years now. Um, Those partnerships and those resources. um, Find people that you think could help you. Find people that you think that you could help. And do it now because the time, and they always say the time to be switching business cards is not in the middle of disaster, but this is a perfect time to swap business cards and meet those SMEs and meet people that can help them Building early and maintaining, yep, including your public information officer. So this is like a kind of a, like a personal plea to you all. Um, I, when I came in, um, I was like, oh, we need to get some information out. Like, where's the, like, the regional public information officers list or like the local public information officers list there? Like, we don't have a list of public information officers. Okay, so what do we do? Oh, well we go through the regional staff, to go through the EMs, to go to whoever, and then hope, hope that it gets to the local PIO somehow. And then some jurisdictions are big enough that they have multiple that may get involved depending on what the situation is. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do is identify where I already have regional PIO groups. There's some in like Um, I call it the real central Virginia, like the Lynchburg area, sorry, city of Richmond. Um, But then we've got um, Hampton Roads has some public information officer groups. So Jason and I have tried to identify those groups. Um, But if you have groups that you know of and you just wanna say, hey Lauren, like I don't know if you've met them before, like we would love to, we've gone out to lunch with them. Um, when uh, like the snowstorm started happening, I already had my list ready to go. Um, But we're doing a lot of cool outreach stuff and I would love um, to just, you know, go direct with the public information officer sometimes. We give them briefings from the National Weather Service and things like that, so um, we're we're trying to do some really cool stuff. Anticipate who your partners will be for all hazards. So this was another thing. Executive Order 41 was signed a couple years ago by Governor Northam and it it put all the PIOs, the state agency PIOs that will come and support the Joint Information Center. Um, But it still had VDEM as as kind of the lead for everything. Um, And so what I've tried to do is build out a list like, okay, if a major plane crashes um, and it's a significant loss of life, Who can I anticipate, and I try to think through, like who is gonna be the lead on information? Who are my federal agencies that are gonna come in? Who are my other state agencies? Um, You always include the locality. Um, But try to think through now, if something happened, who am I gonna call and try to identify that person in advance or those people in advance and build a relationship, maybe build a plan, and talk through how you're gonna communicate that. I didn't realize until we did um, some of the uh, the pipeline things and stuff like that, that some of our partners have to go through like three judges just to put out a press release or talk to the media, or they just, they have a policy in place that doesn't allow them to speak to media at all. So they're like, you know, Lauren, it would be really great if you could just put this out for us. <laughs> like. No, And they're like, no, we literally have to go through, like, our judges to, to do this. It's not getting out, like, in the next week. Um, and so, but knowing that up front would have been super helpful for me. And now I know that if we have this event, they are not going to speak. I'm going to have to work with them extra hard to get their information from them. Um, find out who the intended audience trusts. And we'll talk about that in a minute for Partners and Preparedness. Um, And then who can provide the best answers for follow-up questions? So if you're gonna have, um, you know, like a media event, um, you're gonna have a media call, or you're gonna have a press conference, um, there's gonna be people that are gonna be giving briefings. But try to identify in advance where some of those follow-up questions might might be. um, And try to identify who you could anticipate having to answer those. And then what shared outlets can be used? How will messages be coordinated and amplified? when we send out uh, joint press releases, um, we don't have, and that's that's another, we don't have Joint Information Center letterhead, so if I'm putting something out from the Joint Information Center, it's going to be um, just some type of joint press release if it needs to be multiple agencies. Um, but we have to talk through if we're going to do a press conference or we're going to do anything. We have to talk through, okay, whose media list are we going to use? Are we going to send it out to everybody? Um, When in doubt, you can always have the governor pick because it's a whole lot easier for hand-to-hand pick the media (laughs) that he wants to come than it is. Um, We don't have that luxury. We sort of take an all-or-nothing kind of approach to that as long as they're accredited media. Um, And then they should always involve more than one outlet. So um, you've got a couple TV networks. Um, You've got uh, several, you know, radio stations. Don't forget your um, Hispanic radio stations. Um, you've got the ability to do social media so talking about um, Outlets and how you use them. We sat down and we were like, okay, we if we put out a press release Do we do we need to put it out on social media? Does it always need to go? So kind of our rule of thumb is if it's something just like a quick update on our agency Facebook or Twitter are what we use um, if it's something that is um, Big and it needs to be a press release. It's a press release. We amplify it on all of our channels. If it's just a news, like somebody got recognized as like an award, um, we try to think through. Okay, it's going to go on our news page, but like this would be really cool for our colleagues to know, so we're going to post that on LinkedIn. And we try to think through, so we're not oversaturating everybody with information from Vedom. We try to be really strategic. So if it's a grant announcement. Um, which I learned a really good lesson on grants. As soon as you put out grant announcements for things, the general public is going to call me because my name's on there, and they're going to ask me how I can buy them a generator, and they're going to give me their mailing address where I can ship this generator to, because I have said that generators are part of this grant. Um, So my name, or my number, is no longer on there, and we have inserted grants information onto there. But that was a huge lesson learned, because some of the media outlets would pick up on it and they would send it, or they would have it as like a story, and then you're like, that no, it's for locality. So now we're like, okay, LinkedIn, and we're going to send it out through you know regional staff if we need to, or some other type of outlet. So just really strategically thinking through um, how you're messaging, and it's the little boy that cried wolf, right? If I just posted about every grant, every blue sky, you know. I don't want to call grants mundane because that's how we function as an agency. Um, but the public doesn't care about that. And so they're going to unsubscribe. And we want them to subscribe because when we give them actionable emergency information or preparedness information, I still want them to be part of my audience. So what would you do? And then we're going to kind of move into the, the sort of DEI aspect. Um, what would you do if this appeared on your phone right now? Would you panic? Would you ask somebody nearby? Would you ignore it? What would you do if you needed to find emergency guidance and your webpage looked like this? So in Virginia, there are nearly 200,000 blind people um, and then it's 90% of the visually impaired population live in low income. So not only um, is there a factor of having a medical condition, but now we're getting into socioeconomic factors as well. So you're tagging both of those on together. And then more than 82% of all people who are blind are 50 and older. So they're moving more into that elderly population. So 700,000 Virginians have some type of hearing limitation and 16% roughly of Virginians, so nearly 1.4 speak a language other than English, but more than 94% of the world's population does not speak English. And we know that outside of having residents in Virginia that don't speak English, we get a pretty um, busy, depending on you know what part of the state you're in, you get a pretty large influx of, of visitors from other countries that don't speak the language as well. And so you can quickly see when we send out a WEA, that's what they're getting on their phone. That does not translate. Um, so when you send out an emergency alert, and somebody is, you know, from a foreign country, they're, they're not going to see that in their native language. They're going to see it in, in English. Um, for somebody that uses a screen reader device, if you post a PDF to your website, that's what they're going to see. It's not going to talk to them and t- describe what the, what the visual is, they're just not going to be able to get the information. And so um, we do have a legal obligation to ensure that the whole community is able to access. So if you're not familiar with 504 and 508 compliance, you should be familiar because this doesn't just apply to communications, it applies to everything we do. And I can say it was a huge lesson learned during COVID that you would be surprised how many of your colleagues or state workers um, have these impairments that you don't know about. And when you don't turn on closed captioning for your virtual meetings, they're out. Um, Government agencies have also been sued for not providing real-time accessible um, public information and have lost, and that's a real real big thing. Um, If you're only posting things in English and just hoping that it works itself out for everybody else that doesn't speak English, you're opening yourself up uh, to that second bullet. Um, and then just not addressing the issues up front um, can be more expensive and, and harder to come by in the thick of a disaster. So it's estimated um, that 1.5 million, based on all those statistics, lack access to emergency information. So it's roughly you know, a million and a half people in the Commonwealth um, that we're losing by not doing those things. Um, this doesn't even include those that are illiterate, um, people that don't have access to technology anyway, um, people that don't report their disability or ESL status, um, undocumented immigrants, and visitors. So I want to talk just really quickly about some real-world communications challenges, not all in Virginia, but I think um, just three quick high-level, not going to go into in-depth. but. Um, When we had poultry plant and migrant workers getting ill at plants, um, we all put up those posters like, hey, wash your hands, don't touch anybody, stay six feet away. We were having a really hard time communicating this um, to the folks that were in in the poultry farm. And they had them in Spanish, and so they were everywhere, and they're like, I don't know. They were Creole Haitian, a Haitian population. So then it was, OK, we need to get this translated into their language. So then we can put them up, and then they'll, they'll be able to get the information. So you put them up. They're illiterate in their native language. So it's not just enough to translate, because they don't read or write in Creole Haitian either. And so you can sit here and say, well, I'm going to translate everything. Um, and then you quickly realize that that, that that doesn't work. You actually have to go have somebody that speaks that language be able to go out there um, and, and talk to these people because they're not getting the information. Um, this is another uh, way that sometimes kids or family members can come in. Um, some of these that are English as a second language or non-English speaking do send their children to American schools and they have limited English ability um but i think in this case they did they sent teams out there to 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 speak with them um hispanic messaging and competing dialects and i know sable k will will remember this we decided um, so during covid we did all of these hispanic um, tv commercials and they were great they were informative and um you know we felt like they were culturally appropriate and so we decided we were going to have, like, folks groups. And it was going to be great. We were going to get a, you know, um, some of the Hispanic, was like a Hispanic caucus or group that came in. Really, this is going to be great. We've got, like, 30 people. They're going to come in. And they literally argued about the dialect. Having a certain soccer jersey on was, like, not right for others. Um, and it just, like, And then you're like, we just have to decide. And somehow we landed on (laughs) Colombian is apparently like the purest Spanish (laughs) there is. And we were like, we're just gonna have to like settle on Colombian Spanish. Um, But I never would have thought, um, we did have to change some of our billboards because there was such a major difference in how some of them interpreted slang. And I never would have known. Like, had I not brought those people in there and I just had one person that spoke Spanish look at this and say, yep, we're all good. Had no idea, I would have been offending, you know, three other Spanish-speaking dialects. So, um, another one, which was huge, and I know a lot of people are still reeling from the repatriation, um, is cultural competency. Um, It's not expected that everybody that's in emergency management is gonna understand every culture, every religion, um every everything how they communicate how they deal with deceased, um and so i had uh, had taken a class and they were talking about there was a mass shooting and one of the individuals was jewish so they put out messaging to the group um because they had they had some people that were just like no, no i want i want my loved one i'm i'm, I'm gonna bury my loved one i, I need their body um, and they decided to put out this messaging that was pretty harsh, like, no, it's still under investigation, they're gonna stay there, um, and then they'll go to the the, um, medical examiner, um, and then at some point, you're gonna get this body back. They didn't take into account um, that these uh, two of the families um, were Jewish, and they have, um, in, in some practices, very strict requirement for burying their dead, like that day, or within 24 hours. And so the idea of not getting their loved one back for several days or maybe a week um, was completely against their religious burial practices. I wouldn't have known that. I would venture to guess that, you know, not a lot of people in this room may not have known that. Um, And so when we talk about communications challenges, these are the types of things that we have to think about. People that are illiterate in second languages, people that speak different dialects of the language, and then cultural competency. And that was another, you know, like I said, that was a big one um, for the Afghan repatriation um, because they have a lot of cultural nuances that we don't have over here. Um, And so things that they do could be seen as wrong here and vice versa, Um, knowing what foods they eat. knowing what their their kids are allowed to have i mean it it, it'll blow your mind Um, and so having partnerships with folks um, that can give you that cultural perspective is really big Um, this is my favorite because it's okay not to know it all Um, i feel like emergency management is expected to be everything to everyone i felt a lot during covid um, that i was expected to be everything to everyone for communications Um, but leverage professionals Um, ask about resources, um, and always ask yourself, if this were to occur, what resources would I need, and how do I plan to inform the public? It's one thing to have a plan on what you're going to do, but you need to also identify how you're going to communicate with the public. So best practices, media day, bringing the media in early and often. Um, This is one thing that I'm gonna try to have our media in before hurricane preparedness. You wanna get B-roll of the EOC so that you're not knocking on our door at like six o'clock at night um, when we're all trying to manage an uh, an event. Um, Having media kits, like so having information about your agency that the media can have in advance to understand what emergency management does Um, I really quickly noticed after COVID and convoys and 95, that people (laughs) didn't understand what emergency management does. Um, The fact that we weren't running incident command blew their mind. Um, And so I really discovered I need to level set our media partners um, in advance because that's only going to help us um, when they come calling for stories. Knowing when to be reactive versus proactive. Knowing when um, you need to be reactive. So, like, we're getting a couple media inquiries. I'm going to let them come to us and I'm going to give them some answers. But when I have the big picture, that's when I'm going to move to proactive. I mean, that's kind of what we did for the trucker convoy. Um, because it was an unknown. I mean they're like traveling to this city, losing 30, picking up 100, going to the next city, losing 20, picking up four. Um, And it was just we didn't know when they were coming and so it was kind of like okay we're gonna do some reactive message when the media asks we're gonna have these answers but when we know more then and we know they're coming and we know the timing and we know the impacts, that's when you move to a proactive messaging, because if you go proactive and you have very vague information, like forget it, because they're just gonna ask questions anyway. So knowing that timing, and I think we really, um, we found a balance during that one. Ensuring leaders are informed and provided regular talking points. Um, This is something that I started doing um, during COVID and then moving into every event. Our leadership, whether it's Aaron and Sean, it actually goes all the way up to the governor's office they get regular talking points um, at least once a day, if not multiple times a day. Um, It'll highlight the changes and I'll gather it from all the agencies and it'll go. And I really think it it level sets them, like Carrie was showing with the briefing, it level sets them to the situation. Um, It saves you from having to get questions, Um, but it also allows them to develop their questions too and think through it so when you have your next briefing, they're already prepared, they know what's been going on you can kind of skip over that and go to the questions that they're going to have. Um, Deciding your messaging strategy and battle rhythm. So as soon as we open the JIC, we take a look at it. Um, And it's situationally dependent, right? Because for snowstorms, you're getting National Weather Service here and here. During hurricanes, you're getting, um, you know, three, six, nine, all that. So trying to plan your battle rhythm around what's going on and understanding when a JIC isn't needed. My biggest, if I do nothing else with my life, it's gonna be (laughs) explaining to people what a joint information system and what a joint information uh, center does and doesn't do, um, and having a misunderstanding about what that looks like. Um, We will be the best source of information because we will um, have SMEs, we will um, have plans and strategies. Our goal is to get that public trust Um, We also want to um, manage rumors um, and we want to have a measure of public perception of the incident. Um, And that is key because you can use those things to understand what the public feels about the messaging if you do enough social listening. And if you don't have somebody in your joint information system that is doing that social listening, that's a critical piece. Um, And then working with incident command. Misconceptions. We're not setting up a Joint Information Center for every event. Um, It's it's not always needed. And so you have to decide, like, hey, for a trucker convoy, I'm dealing with state police and DOT. I don't need to open up a Joint Information Center. I'm going to get them on an email, and we're going to talk through. We don't all need to sit in a room until we do need to sit in a room. Um, But we're not going to set that up. I can email just as easily as I can bring a bunch of people in to sit for 12-hour shifts and not really have much to say at that point. So um, deciding when you do that. I will never message on behalf of other entities. Like, I will never, if you're not already putting out as a locality, I'm not putting that message out for you. So um, I will amplify if you're like, hey, Lauren, I need you to share this. Can you help us? Yes, absolutely. But I'm not going to say, I can take on Rob because he's not in the room, I'm not going to say oh look Chesapeake opened up a shelter I'm just gonna go ahead and I'm gonna you know create a create a post for that that's not that's not what we do we're really there to amplify or if you need help crafting a message Um, that's really where the expertise is Um, we don't decide what the public protective actions are so it's not a bunch of communicators in a room like you know what we should probably close schools for a year and a half That that would be probably what we should do that's not us that's coming from a way higher up Um, and so understanding that when we put that information out that's coming from someone obviously higher than the people in the room Um, and I can't control what your elected officials post, say or do they're not getting that information from me Um, and so with that being said um, that's a big ask you know if you've got local PIOs that work with your mayor, your city manager, um, bring them into the fold for the PIO group, so that at very least, if somebody higher up is telling them to say or do something, you'll be able to contradict that, or the PIO will, and say, yeah, I don't think that's what we've been hearing, and I think this would be a better strategy. So what we've been doing, if you all have been a part of anything for two years, you know that I set up calls before, during, um and after events we've been doing a lot of those they've been really super successful um, unless you were on that one where i realized that google maxes me out at like 83 participants and then we had a very exclusive waiting room um, to get in uh, so we have been doing those um, building relationships um, ensuring we have communications training. We are going to be updating the VDEM website, as Aaron said. Um, if I do nothing else in the next six months, I would really like to get that updated, um, get some more information on there. Um, and then partners in preparedness. So Katie is going to be our lead on our new partners in preparedness. This was a budget bill put forward by Delegate Price, who's down here in the Hampton Roads um, area, um, to really do some um, local outreach events. And so the goal um, is really to break down those barriers, reach the vulnerable communities. But what it will be um, is anybody, nonprofits, faith-based, community liaisons, private businesses, social media influencers, whoever, wants to, uh, you know, preach the gospel of preparedness um, is really what we are looking for. Um, New York City, EM, and some other states have great models. VDH has the Partners of Prayer and Prevention. Um, And it's really just giving them information that already exists publicly. So we're not going to be announcing an evacuation to that group (laughs) um, or anything like that. This is, you know, how to make a kit, we're translating things, we're going out to events, we're building relationships with faith-based organizations because, oh by the way, those organizations too may be able to help you with some of that cultural competency or religious competency things you can kind of um, work off of each other. Um, Online access to our content calendar, uh, know your zone widget they can put on their website if they're in a, a flood zone. Um, and the ability to request VDEM attendance um, with tabling, messaging, and giveaways. But what I will say is that in no time will Katie just charge into a locality and set up a big booth and be the messenger of emergency management. The goal would be to, we get asked to be at an event, work with our regional staff at VDM, um to get with the local emergency manager and see how we can partner. They will register themselves. There's nothing that anybody has to do as an emergency manager. These these folks will register themselves through a portal on our website, um, but I do see benefit in that if you all needed, you know, hey, we've got to do this messaging to the community, and we've got like four churches that are subscribed in that area, and you need to get something out, like absolutely, like let's get it out. Um, but it's really um, for them to be able to um, be trusted messengers in their community because we know that um, people were more likely to get vaccines when their pastor told them that it was okay to get the vaccine and they saw him doing it. And so this is kind of building on what was done. This, is, um, this was delegates, Delegate Prices, I won't call it the baby, but this was her, her project. Um, we're excited to see it through fruition. We plan, um, we're still building it. We have an SOG, we've got a couple things, but. Um, We can expect this to, I'm aiming for um, kind of the May time frame and there'll be a lot more information that comes out to you as a local before this launches and that I promise you we're not just going to launch it and then have to have you explain what this program is. Um, So, just uh, in closing, um, remember that communications is not uh, just one person in a room deciding the message. Um, It's collaborative, it's coordinated, it doesn't just involve public information officers it's not an afterthought but i'm telling you right now that it can make or break your incident um if it goes sideways so um that is all i have um and so now i will turn it over uh, to sable k thanks lauren
2: so what I'm going to talking to you all a bit about is understanding how to apply diversity, equity and inclusion principles in your communications, and also to tell you a little bit about what VDEM has done since we last convened in person for this emergency management symposium. So first of all, I know that we've been sitting for a bit, so I would like you all to indulge me for a moment. So if, to the extent that you can, if you all could stand, that would be lovely. Sean, you kind of like stole my thunder with this a little bit before, and I was like, oh, he's doing the same thing or something similar. Um, but I just I think it's really important to embrace movement, get blood flowing, things of that nature. And what I would like for you all to do is to think to yourself, um, if you have partnered with VDEM or any other agency on a mission and event, if you could raise your hand, it doesn't matter if it's your right hand or your left hand, keep it raised, keep it raised. With their hand still being raised, have you all communicated with somebody about emergency management in the last week or so? I'm seeing some more hands raised, some more hands raised. For the folks who have their hands raised, if you could turn your palms to the back and pat yourselves on the back. I just wanted to tell you all, you know, happy Emergency Management Professionals Week. And for those who didn't get to raise their hands, high five somebody nearby and wish them a happy Emergency Management Professionals Week. So, and I wanted to do that because. I think it's really important that as we celebrate our DEI accomplishments and particularly the ones that are related to communications, we have to understand that each one of us are natural communicators. Just as a part of being in the emergency management field. We have to communicate what we do efficiently, effectively, to a wide variety of audiences. And It's so important for us, especially here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, to incorporate and um, embrace and integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion principles into our work because just by the nature of where we are in this beautiful and amazing Commonwealth of Virginia, it's a very diverse area. If you're looking at regional diversity, geographic diversity, if we're looking at racial and ethnic diversity. if we're looking at diversity of ability we just have so many different components that we need to keep our wrap our minds around as we protect and serve folks here in the Commonwealth so there are a couple of pieces that I want to underscore here I won't be before you all too long and so I just want to make sure that you all understand um, and understand some of the pieces that we've done here so the first thing that I wanted to highlight was is our um, health equity um, community contact tracing and testing guidebook this came out last May, and it was one of the primary um, key accomplishments of our Health Equity Working Group. As I'm sure you all are well aware, our Health Equity Working Group was convened and established in March of 2020 to uh, make sure that we were applying an equity lens, both proactively and reactively, to our COVID-19 pandemic. And what we wanted to do, and it actually grew from a group of three to a group of over 120 individuals, government leaders, community advocates, who really helped us to make sure they were part of that focus group that Lauren was talking about, um, our a Latino um, subsect, to make sure that we weren't just speaking to an echo chamber and developing messages for ourselves, but we were developing messages and tools and resources that could be used by localities um, on the ground. And so this contact tracing and um, testing guidebook made sure that our localities had the information that they needed to understand key populations, understand the barriers for uh, those elevated risks to those populations, determining the testing areas for meeting unmet needs, and developing inclusive and accessible communications. Specifically, we wanted to focus on pre- and post-event communications, making sure that the personnel who were servicing understood how to communicate to the folks, and especially that the signage that was there would overcome things such as health literacy barriers, access and functional needs barriers, the socioeconomic barriers, and communications barriers that existed there. Um, Building upon the success that we had with our health equity, um, our testing guidebook, we transitioned from testing to vaccinations. And so, uh, excuse me, before we did that, we were trying to uh, make sure that the individuals in the Commonwealth had access to the personal protective equipment that they needed. So we launched our health equity pilot program. This was a flagship program of our health equity leadership task force, and it was especially remarkable because we leveraged a partnership and developed a partnership with nearly seven localities, probably some many of you in this room, to make sure that over a million cloth masks and about 840 bottles of sanitizer were developed and distributed to vulnerable communities. And what was really special about this is that we let the locality take control to help us to understand what information needed to be shared with the individuals in the areas of highest need in the locality and also spoke with them about what languages that information needed to be translated into. And Lauren brought up an uh, example earlier today that's where some of the conversations about dialects came into place, but we wanted to make sure that we applied those lessons learned and that we weren't coming in acting like we knew what needed to be said, but we were working in partnership and in a collaborative spirit to work with the localities. And building upon that is when we leveraged our hyperlocal community outreach Um, we had an incredible partner through um, elite business strategies and they were able to help us develop hyperlocal community vaccination efforts throughout the commonwealth the elite team deployed 16 um, teams across the commonwealth and they were working with our local health districts and our emergency managers to ensure that vulnerable populations had educated on um, information correct information about vaccination so that they could make informed decisions for themselves and their localities and elite reached over 1 million Virginians and partnered with over 500 community partners. One of the things that I thought was so special that the elite team did is that they made sure that the 16 teams that they deployed were primarily composed of individuals who were from that locality. And to the extent that English should not be the predominant language, they they had teams fully comprised of folks who spoke the language that was most needed for that vulnerable and marginalized marginalized area and so as we're looking as for emergency managers moving forward we should continue to um, utilize that model um, of letting the localities go first and then also making sure that we're speaking in the way and in the language that our um, residents need us to. And the elite team helped us to support the nine community vaccination teams that we had across the Commonwealth. Um, This was a synergy of um, communications efforts between VDEM, VDH, and um, as well as our communications contractors. And thankfully, this collaborative approach was able to lead over 400,000 Virginians to be vaccinated. And what was really great about this, um, and we were able to apply these lessons learned um, through our partners in prayer and prevention, and now we have our partners Partners in Preparedness um, group that um, Lauren talked about just a few moments ago, it's really about understanding when like understanding who the messenger needs to be and what the message needs to be. And making sure that we understand that sometimes as localities, as emergency managers, we're not always going to be the best messenger. So making sure that we have established those relationships before an emergency occurs so that we can make sure that we leverage the trusted voice um, in the community to make sure that they can amplify the safety messages that we're trying to convey. And so the um, final piece that I wanted to talk about was the um, cultural competence training for Afghan repatriation. Lauren um, alluded to this a little bit earlier today, but just wanted to underscore how important cultural competence training is and how it really is the way for you, it's, it makes the best business sense for all of us to embrace this kind of work. It really helps us to serve our communities better. So in support of Operation Allies Welcome, VDEM provided cultural competency training to VDEM staff and state partners, and the purpose of this training was to provide a broad overview of Afghan culture to encourage participation to think about intentionally about how our biases, and we all have them, our biases, prejudice, and misconceptions can impact others. And just as a level set, because I think it's important to define key terms, um, cultural and linguistic Competence is a set of congruent behaviors, attitudes, and policies that come together in a system, agency, or among professionals that enables um, a collective work across cultural situations. Culture specifically refers to an integrated pattern of human behavior that include language, thoughts, communications, actions, customs, beliefs, values, and institutions of racial, ethnic, and religious or social groups. And then competence implies having the capacity to function effectively as an individual or organization within the context of the cultural beliefs, behaviors, and needs presented by the consumers and their communities. And what was really incredible about this training that um, VDEM did is that the outcome was an enhancement of our ability to provide services to our Afghan guests that honor their cultural beliefs, interpersonal styles, attitudes, and behaviors as they were relocated and evacuated to um, military sites here in the Commonwealth. And going forward, VDEM is committed to um, being intentional about ensuring that these kinds of trainings continue and will be um, at the forefront as we attempt to provide the best support to all who come and visit and reside within the Commonwealth. So those are just a couple of examples of how we have leveraged DEI principles, so how we've interwoven those principles into some of our communications pieces. And one thing that I wanted to leave with you all before I step to the side is that DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, is everyone's responsibility. One of the things that I loved about the way that with this presentation was done today is that I wasn't the only person who talked about DEI principles today. You all had saw and She talked through about the wonderful and complex and rich diversity that we have here in the Commonwealth. And the more that we take DEI out of the DEI office and have it to be something that is a part of all of our nomenclature, the stronger, better, more productive, and prepared Commonwealth we. Will will be. And so with that, I will I'm happy to enter questions at the appropriate time and um, go on to our our next
0: piece. All right folks I want to thank Lauren and Sable Kay. Fantastic uh, presentation, great information as we continue to mo- move forward. Uh, COVID de- definitely got us in these different areas that we hadn't seen before, um, but uh, continue to share our best practices. Please reach out if you need help, support. Lauren, Sable K, uh, anybody else in v that can help with any, um, what did you call them Lauren? Wicked problems. Uh, <laughs> oh, Carrie's wicked problems, yes, which I love.